Section 59 of Anecdotes of Big Cats and Other Beasts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anecdotes of Big Cats and Other Beasts by David Alec Wilson. Charlie Darwin or the Lady Gibbon. Part 13. Corroborating Aristotle and Company. Wondering, if not worshipping, as she blinked at the morning sun, Charlie Darwin, then and all the rest of the day, was continually giving opportunities of observation such as would have rejoiced the heart of Wallace. The gibbons in a zoo are more out of their element than men in a jail. They are surrounded by strange sights and sounds, and stupefied and quasi-paralyzed by lack of occupation. We can learn little more from them, living there, than from their little bodies when they are dead nor are pets more satisfactory. At any rate, all others I have seen, but Charlie, were too sophisticated. You could no more learn from them their native life than you could learn the ways of English children in the country by watching poor little gutter snipes who have never been out of town. But Charlie was the real wild maid of the woods, the genuine gibbon, unadulterated. She never needed to conform to our ways unless she saw fit to do so, to please herself. It was live and let live on both sides. She was at home in every sense. Cousins of hers, perhaps actual brothers and sisters, or her bereaved mother, were roving free, not very far away. As free as any wild beast ever is, that is to say, living from hand to mouth as usual, seeking provender. And after all, that is how nature first made man. Ere the base laws of servitude began, when wild in woods the noble savage ran, one day, as I was listening to mingled sounds from across the river, thinking I heard the oo, oo, oo of the gibbons, mingled with the dogs barking and human cries, there seemed to be a look of recognition on Charlie's face, and she also listened. But neither then nor at any time did she make a second attempt to join her relatives, so that her master began to hope that, perhaps, when she was older, some likely bachelor of their clan might be attracted to civilization by her. It was quite certain she would never revert. She had had her fill of barbarism. The melancholy moping of her first few days when she used to eye the woods never returned after it went away. From dawn to dusk her mercurial activity never ceased, and that fact seemed to her master to illuminate one of the most interesting problems in mental evolution. It is not yet very long since Sando and others have taught us that the best way to develop the muscles is to use them frequently in gentle exercises, avoiding great spasmodic efforts which strain and weaken them. The same law applies to the mind. There was a Latin jingle to that effect current long ago in schools, which is worth preserving as a bit of old-fashioned wisdom. I never saw it in print, but was taught it orally many years ago by one who had learned it in the same way sixty years before. Guta cavat lapidum, non vi, sed sepe cadendo. Sic vir fit doctus, non vi, sed sepe legendo. The meaning is this. A man's maid learned by reading oft, and not by rush and shock, just as the water falling down, drip dripping, wears the rock. Assuming, for the sake of brevity, that the reader agrees to this, which is a matter about which men of sense are generally agreed, 
What has to be told is that Charlie Darwin, our Charlie, illustrating evolution without studying it, unconsciously suggested that the approved method of steady and gentle exertion was merely a continuation of nature's way upwards, the identical way that nature took to bring the apes above the other beasts and then improve the apes. Their hands provided a ready means of action for many purposes, and their habits of diet, which made them ever ready to eat, provided a perpetual supply of motive power. The great progressive movement, so begun, has never stopped. The restlessness and the ennui, which caused so many crimes and follies, are nature's impulse, misused or neglected. It comes from habits older than the hills. It is the vital force of each. With it we may do evil, if we will, but we can do nothing at all without it. The cats can gorge themselves and sleep in happiness and health, but nature has made that impossible for gibbons and for men. Of course, the only novelty here is the suggestion that continual employment was nature's way of stimulating the growth of the brain. The doctrine that beings, with such brains as men and apes have now, can find content and peace in healthy occupation, and in no other way, is a very old discovery. But, as there are many to whom philosophy is folly written large, it may make the truth more credible to them to mention that Charlie's habits proved this beyond a doubt, and so corroborated the profoundest conclusion of Aristotle, ethics. She also ratified the rhetoric of John Ruskin. His declamations against the excess of division of labor were the derision of practical people in the 19th century. Polishing the pins with men's souls, bah! With shrugs and sneers, they intimated that he was a lunatic. If he had not been rich, he might have been jailed as an incendiary. Rich or poor, he would have been in danger anywhere but in free and happy England. And now England's patience is rewarded by the discovery that Ruskin was essentially right. If our brains have been developed by our innate readiness to turn our hands to anything, then, assuredly, to restrict activity to one or two mechanical movements is to reverse the natural process, and so torture the mind, worse than the constraining bandages torture the feet of Chinese ladies. The damage done to vital organs in that way cannot be compensated by any wages. Thus were the conclusions of Aristotle and the rhetoric of Ruskin reinforced by the example of Charlie Darwin. End of section 59